KPF in Fresno and on the World Wide Web at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, stay tuned for Cover to Cover Open Book. Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Muchísimas gracias to all of you who helped us during our spring fund drive. If you volunteered for the phones or called in with your financial support, we're here because of you. Thank you. If you missed our drive, you can still become a member by going to our website on the World Wide Web at kpfa.org. My guest this afternoon is renowned author, poet, and filmmaker Sherman Alexie. Sherman Alexie started with writing poetry and wrote several books, including I Would Steal Horses and The Business of Fancy Dancing, which he later made into a film, which he directed. He also wrote the screenplay for Smoke Signals, which came out of his collection of short stories, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven, and that was published by Atlantic Monthly Press in 1993. For this collection, along with several awards, he won a Penn Hemingway Award. He has recently written his 18th book and second novel, Flight. Sherman Alexie's first novel in 10 years is the hilarious and tragic portrait of an orphaned Indian boy who travels back and forth through time in a violent search for his true identity. His first novel since Indian Killer is a powerful, fast, and timely story of a troubled foster teenager, a boy who is not a legal Indian because he was never claimed by his father, who learns the true meaning of terror. Sherman Alexie's been in town this week to talk about his book as well as speak at the annual National Conference for Race and Ethnicity in American Higher Education, NCOR, to address the resurgence of racist incidents in higher education. We started by describing his latest book, Light. Well, the, the book is about a 15-year-old, half-Irish, half-Indian orphan kid who, after living in a series of foster homes, assaults his latest foster mother, ends up in jail where a, a sort of a, a illusory figure, uh, a white kid named Justice, convinces our lead character, whose name is, nickname is Zitz, that in order to bring back his dead parents, dead and disappeared parents, that he has to go into a public place, a bank, and shoot people, that it's a contemporary ghost dance. And in the bank, he shoots people and then is himself shot and killed by a bank guard. But before he dies... Uh, he ends up jumping into the body of various people during various violent moments in American history. So you start with that very violent act that unfortunately is all too commonplace for our young folks. I wanted you to talk about that type of violence that you considered putting in that book because it is deliberate. Well, you know, it's not common, actually. Mass killings are not common in the United States. In fact, they're incredibly rare. Uh, and I always get a little worried when I've been talking about this book because it's in the aftermath of Virginia Tech uh, that it ends up, we end up talking about it like it is common. And it's not. We, we, let's remember that on that Monday, 300 million Americans led perfectly mundane lives, uh, that nothing out of the ordinary happened to them. So we need, we need to preface any conversation with that. But that said, uh, human history and American history is very violent, and, and our most able and active 
practitioners of violence are young males. So uh, it was important to me to write about that sort of violence in the fictional figure of Zitz, uh, a, a young American, a young Native American, and his turn toward violence. And some people have found it sort of distasteful or wonder why I'm writing about it. But, you know, we're in a war. And so, you know, my sons, as, they are, as they're coming of age in a time of war, are increasingly asking me questions about what it means. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that in terms of what is palatable sometimes for the page. Do you get a lot of criticism for writing about stuff that might not necessarily be popular or acceptable? Well, I think in this book in particular, one section has really disturbed people, not necessarily because of the violence itself, but because of, of, of the kind of violence I talk about, in fact, maybe it's two sections. For instance, he drops into the body of a little kid at the Battle of Little Bighorn in the aftermath. Uh, and that battle was, a, 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 was, was an act of war. It was an oppressed group, Native Americans, fighting back against a colonizing force. And they won the battle that day. But at a certain point after the victory was won, the Native Americans there participated in incredible atrocities and mutilated and tortured and, and, and did things unimaginable to the bodies uh, and corpses of cavalry soldiers. So at some point during that day, a victory became a series of war crimes. And so I, I focus on that idea. When does victory become a war crime? Uh, when does a war become moral? Is a war ever moral? Is violence ever justified? And and so, uh, you know, Zitz, the character at one point says, how do you tell the difference between the good and the bad guys when they say the same things? So I took that idea and I dropped Zitz into the body of an FBI agent during the political activisms of the 1970s, a fictional version in Red River, Idaho, where he drops into the body of a white FBI agent who, along with another white FBI agent, collude with two Indian activists to assassinate another Native American political activist. And that stuff happened uh, uh, in the 70s in the United States on Pine Ridge. There are very famous uh, American Indian activists who actively colluded with the United States government to kill other Indians. Uh, we know who they are in the underground. We know what they did. It's certainly not common in public knowledge, but we know what they did. And so... Uh, how do how how do they justify that in their head? How does the FBI justify their violence? How do political activism, you know, activists on the left and right justify their violence? And it's the same rhetoric over and over and over again, you know, by any means necessary. And again, how acceptable is it to write about that in terms of what you're talking about is that COINTELPRO period that actually affected much of the movement within the American Indian movement as well as the Black Panthers uh, back in the day. And I wondered, you know, a lot of times as the left, as a progressive institution that we are broadcasting over, there's a lot of times that we portray the, the FBI, the bad guys, and really don't look at the role that they played and that they obviously had. They were successful in the infiltration. They, they, had they had allies in the far left. Have you gotten any flack for writing about that? Uh, I've gotten flack on your radio station when I did a live interview. <laughs> so for saying these kind of things, uh, you know, the notion that uh, the far left and the far right, in my mind, you know, wrap around and become the same people. I wanted to go back to the book in terms of the other issue that you write about is the shame. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to 
to describe what what were the forces when you decided to develop the character Zitz and having had the foster families that he did and being that epitome of the dislocated Indian and as well as the Zitz representing part of that shame, figuratively and literally. Well, I mean, the book, the first sentence of the book is Call Me Zitz, which is a direct homage to Moby Dick, um, Melville's novel. And, you know, I did it partly to be funny, but also to, to point out how important, how epic a teenager's complexion is in his life, his physical appearance. It is as epic as the whale was to Ahab. So I wanted to make sure that people understood that, yes, this is an epic idea. Acne is epic for, for teenagers. Uh, and it was for me. I, you know, I had bad skin growing up. I still have bad skin. And, and, uh, so that he was physically marked, literally physically marked, uh, uh, by his experiences. And so his shame, his, uh, lack of self-worth, all of that had a physical manifestation. Uh, you know, I wanted that to be very clear. And, and, you know, his shame comes from a number of reasons. You know, he's an orphan. He's lost his parents. He's Irish and Indian and yet has received no cultural education in either, uh, uh, uh either of those identities. Uh, you know, he's been in 21 foster homes. He's been unable to be successful at school or any other organized place. So, you know, his physical appearance, his educational levels, his family background, his dislocation, his disconnection, all of that combines as he says that he, you know, has 99 kinds of shame and then at the end he's ashamed of being ashamed so it circles back in a, in a really self-destructive and destructive way mm-hmm. and yet you have some of his characters through his time travel and some of them that actually are unlikely characters you have him be the fbi agent you have him be when you're talking about that battle i mean that was unlikely characters that are not easily defined in terms of being capable of doing heinous crimes and as well as being able to love. Yeah, I mean, that's the notion of who we are as human beings. Uh, all too often, we, we get these really fundamental ideas of who humans are or what we're capable of. And, and the simple fact is, is that we're all sinners. We're all fragile and flawed and finite and capable of the greatest evils and the greatest goods. And... Uh, any good writer writes fully rounded characters and, and any good political activist would know that as well, uh, th- that we are incredibly flawed. And, and so uh, in writing a book about this and dropping zits into the bodies of these very different characters, I, I wanted to provide him as a fictional character and my readers with this notion, this idea about everybody's forgivable, everybody's redeemable. And and everybody's capable of great evil. Did you ever consider making zits in his time travel? I noticed that they were all men. You know, it's <laughs> funny. It never even occurred to me, uh, which which I don't know why. I, you know, probably because I'm a I'm a guy, so I I put him in the bodies of men. It never even occurred to me. And somebody had mentioned a TV show I loved, Quantum Leap, which was on in the you know early '90s, where the character would often drop the male. The male lead would often drop into women. And I, I always loved those episodes, but they're always missing because it was broadcast television and there's things they couldn't do. They mm-hmm. missed the first thing any man would do if he found himself in the body of a woman. He would masturbate like crazy. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, so I missed that opportunity for, I mean, imagine dropping a 15 year old boy 
right. into the body of an adult woman. Exactly. What he would do. Uh, so, I, you know, I missed out on an incredible gender opportunity to explore the notion uh, of gender difference, to explore the notion of women's capability for evil, women's capability for good. So, you know, as a narrow-minded male, I blew it. Well, you know, I thought that right when he's the FBI agent yeah. and is in love with a with the wife and and is just like really relishing in that moment, I thought, oh my God, the next chapter is going to be a woman. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, the kiss right. should have transferred him. You know, the yeah. you know the kiss should have put him into the body of of the wife of an FBI agent, and the and you know who she knows her husband kills people for a living. Mm-hmm. You know, how does she deal with that? How does she assimilate all that information that her husband is a killer? You That's know, for right. good or bad reasons, he's a killer. Yeah, how, you make how, reference to that. Yeah, yeah, how does she deal with that? And and I blew it. I blew it. I choked. <laughs> okay, I choked. hey, there's a sequel. Yes. I did want to talk to you about your writing in general in terms of what um, I read Ten Little Indians a while back. And uh, I love Corliss, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> See, I've written I've written great young women. <laughs> yeah, you have. I, you definitely have. And I love her character. And I wanted to just touch a little bit about that because you do debunk the romantic notions that a lot of people have about Native American life or even the life on the res. And I wanted you to talk about that because that is very intentional in your writing. Well, you know, people forget, especially Natives, forget that reservation system was established as concentration camps. Reservations were created as places where Indians would go to die. Uh, and I don't think their original intent has changed. I think they still exist as places where Indians die, if not physically, certainly spiritually and emotionally. So my entire operating principle now of my life and my art is that Indians must get their asses off the res. So, you know, I wish I should wear a T-shirt that says, get your ass off the res, uh, you know, physically and metaphorically. Uh, so, uh, you know, Corliss, my character in that story, the search engine from Ten Little Indians, is somebody who's constantly searching for new things, new experiences, new ideas. Uh, she's an intellectual nomad. So, uh, that's really what I'm encouraging in the Native American world among young people, among anybody, is, is to become an intellectual nomad. And you pursue that idea when you explore that in the search engine, when you have Harlan Atwater. Be, almost be trapped well he you actually say he's trapped because his writing uh, is not indian enough for indians and yet is so great for a bunch of white people and and have you ever felt like trapped as a a writer who happens to be native american i mean early on in my career i think i got pigeonholed a little more than i do now but but i've really blasted through all of those barriers and boundaries uh you know i get invited to the big events literary events the new yorker parties the granta things i get published in all the major venues uh uh i'm in the norton anthologies um best american short stories so there's no way in which i feel excluded anymore in the literary world because of my race uh and yet at the same time i'm also completely welcome and accepted in all sorts of indian communities uh you know i receive daily invitations to visit native communities and everywhere i go i meet native people from all over the world who are really into my books so i think i'm at a place now where i i'm accepted by the mainstream and by my subculture in in great ways uh the only people who don't like me 
these days are certain members of the left uh, because, once again, my politics don't match theirs, and I think they get disappointed. I think Native Americans are, are serious political mascots of the left, and, and I think when we behave in ways that don't match up to people's ideas of us as mascots. You mean like being human? Yeah. <laughs> Pe- people get really disappointed when, when, when an Indian might have contrary views to the left. I did want to move back to one issue that you talked about, your message of getting uh, Native American folks out of the res. What's the reception that you get? By and large, it's positive because close to 70% of natives don't live on the res anymore anyway. Uh, but but there is a certain traditional element that, that doesn't like me saying that. Uh, but I think by and large, when I say that, what it merely does is it encourages and confirms the beliefs of all sorts of people who are leaving and want to leave anyway. So I think really what I'm doing is is, is getting people's back. Uh, uh, and 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 uh, merely confirming what they already know. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's like some um, contradiction on that? I noticed on your website that you've um, done some fundraisers for Honor the Earth, and and Honor the Earth is actually um, working really hard in sustainable, uh, maintaining traditional sustainable uh, traditions and around feeding themselves and so forth. And I wondered if that's going on at the same time. Isn't there a slight contradiction around you no, know, keeping that alive and moving because, out of the res? Because almost everybody associated with Honor the Earth had left, gotten college degrees, and then went back. Mm-hmm. There's a stark difference between leaving, getting your degree, finding your path, and then returning. There's a dis- large and epic difference than just staying there and not accomplishing anything. And you're also talking about all sorts of members of Honor the Earth don't live on the res now. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the, so it, it, it is Honor the Earth is very much an urban and rural political movement. I did want to ask you about the the plight, and you make a reference to it in a lot of your writing, the alcoholism. And my daughter actually has uh, just come back from um, Minnesota. She was interning for Honor the Earth. And the use of meth is just epidemic in the reservation. And I just wondered what your thoughts were about such things, because it, it, it it, it really is about a terrible impact that it's having on the American Indian population. My reservation, there are hundreds of meth amphetamine addicts on my reservation. And, and you know, when we talk about these things, all sorts of a people accuse us of being stereotypical. You're, you're stereotyping Native Americans. But the, pro, the, but the real answer is, the real problem is, is that Native Americans, especially reservation Native Americans, have huge problems with addiction and substance abuse. And meth is the brand new one. And it's so cheap, so easy to make, and so instantly addictive that, that it's like the perfect drug uh, to destroy Native Americans. Uh, you know, it's far more effective than Custer ever was. And, and, and uh, I have no idea what to do about it except to rescue people and get them off the res once again. Uh, if you stay... Your chances of surviving are decreasing uh, uh, year by year as meth takes hold. And that's generally the issue for many communities of color in this country in terms of even looking at 
leaving their surroundings. You know, there's that saying, I can't remember, there's, there's one way to stay in in the barrio. I mean, because yeah. I'm a Chicana. And um, there's one way to stay in the barrio, and there's a thousand ways to get out. And people really don't see those uh, ways to get out. Yeah. You know, and it's like it, it becomes a disloyalty, if you will, sometimes. So, and, and, you know, my, my loyalty is to... Uh, uh, Finding more people who dream big. My lo- my loyalty is to ideas. That's the voice of author, poet, and filmmaker Sherman Alexi, and we're talking about his latest book, Flight, published by Black Hat. On cover to cover open book, I'm Amelia Gonzalez. wanted to touch on your film stuff because you had a very successful film smoke signals and you also had a critically acclaimed film the business of fancy dancing which is uh, by the way a beautiful film and i wondered what uh if you're planning i think you have a short film 49 yeah it's it's a mini documentary that talks about the native american song form called the 49 and how it originated and nobody really knows so i make up a bunch of stuff uh huh. So it's a series of lies and exaggerations about the 49. So how do you like doing film? I, I like it because you reach a bigger audience and it's a more communal experience. When you're sitting in a theater with 100 or 200 people, that's like sitting around a fire in the cave. I, I think that appeals much more to our primal selves than books do. So I, I really love that visceral experience. Uh, the big thing for me, the thing that keeps me going in films, despite how horrible it can be trying to raise money and working with film people, is uh, we screened the movie at the University of Minnesota a few years back, Smoke Signals, and the sound on the projector kept going out, so you could, there was no sound. Uh-huh. But there were enough people in the crowd who'd seen the movie enough times, they started filling in the dialogue. Oh, my gosh, like it, Rocky Horror. Yeah, it was, it was the <laughs> Rocky Horror Indian Picture Show. Uh, <laughs> That's and, funny. And, and that experience was so profound, so amazing that, uh, I, I, you know, I want it back. So, you know, I've continued to try to get movies made, but I make movies about contemporary Native Americans. I, I make movies that are weird. And, and so it's completely impossible to raise money for that. Uh, I make movies that have no chance at economic success and therefore nobody invests in them. So, uh, you know, I have to find a, a you know, every six or seven years, I, I find a millionaire who's willing to lose some money. Uh-huh. But um, wouldn't you say the technology is a little more accessible now in terms of uh, making films and for independent filmmakers? Yes, definitely. Uh, with, you know, the, the, the cameras, the editing systems, the internet distribution, the ability to burn your own DVDs, and that's something we're exploring as well. Literally a back porch mom and pop shop for my movies. Mm-hmm. I know you're an avid reader. It's very clear reading your books. And you talk about making films. Do you feel that that's a medium that you have to move towards because you can reach more young folks that way? Or do you, do you know what I mean? In terms of having it be, it sounds like it's a very creative outlet for you. But at some point, the strategy of reaching are younger generations, does that play a role in, well, in well, first selecting of all, it? Well, first of all, I'm a child of movies and TV. I grew up on movies and TV. You know, we had one of the first VCRs. So, uh, 
you know, my primary influence is, is my own in the sense that I want to make movies because I love movies. Uh, I want to make TV shows because I love TV. But uh, that said, uh, this current generation is even more visually oriented, is even more movie and TV driven, YouTube driven, Internet driven, iPod driven. So in order to stay relevant as a storyteller, I have to tell some of my stories in their venues, in their language. Uh, you know, I don't want to become some old fart, you know, pumping out books for an increasingly diminished audience. You know, I want to stay alive and active. And the way to do that is to tell the stories in visual media. Now, you are also um, an amazing poet. And I wondered, what's your touchstone? What what way of writing is or creating, let's say, is your touchstone? I write poems almost every day. So everything comes down to writing a poem. So and that still be, you know, when I'm when all said and done, I will always consider myself a poet. Finally, I have to ask you this question. So who do you think is going to win? <laughs> In terms of the presidential election or the no, NBA? No, I'm talking about the NBA. The, the, uh, the San Antonio <laughs> Spurs are going to sweep the Detroit Pistons. You think? Yeah. Oh yeah, they're pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about basketball, because I, I love your basketball writing. Uh, basketball is, is my favorite activity in the world. It, it's, you know, what it really comes down to is it was my father's favorite thing. So basketball is a way in which my father and I express love. So it's still the primary way in which I express love in, in, in my masculine world with, with my friends and my family, all the males in my life, basketball is the fire around which we express our emotions. So uh, it, it's still that for me. Uh, and with my sons now, it's the same thing. I'm passing on the love. Uh, so it is our, it is my, it is my most sacred ceremony. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with author, poet, and filmmaker Sherman Alexie, and we've been talking about his latest book, Flight, published by Black Cat. He's been in town this week to talk about his book as well as speak at the annual national conference for race and ethnicity in American higher education, ENCOR, to address the resurgence of racist incidents in higher education. The ENCOR conference is taking place this week, and for more information, you could go to www.encor.ou.edu. This has been Cover to Cover Open Book with Bonnie Bone at the controls. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. celebrate the National Queer Arts Festival's 10th anniversary. Come check out the free third annual Queer Women of Color Film Festival June 8th through 10th. Join us for our cocktail fundraiser with queer black women filmmakers. Cheryl Dunny, director of Watermelon Woman and Stranger Inside. Saturday, June 9th 
430 Bravo Theater, San Francisco. For more information, call 415-752-0868 or visit qwocmap.org. This event benefits the Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project and is wheelchair accessible. Hello, this is Peter Lauper, inviting you to join me this Sunday and coming Sundays at 9 in the morning for a couple of hours of spirited talk about what's happening here at home and in the world around us. Newsmaking guests, my news reporter's perspective, and your input over the telephone and via email. Sunday mornings at 9 here on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and worldwide at kpfa.org. presents the third biennial Berkeley Edge Fest. A festival of contemporary performance spotlighting the work of composers Paul Drescher and Frederick Shevsky, June 7th through 10th on the UC Berkeley campus. The Berkeley Edge Fest opens with the West Coast premiere of Paul Drescher's chamber opera, The Tyrant, written to showcase the voice of tenor John Dykers. Thursday and Saturday, June 7th and 9th in Zellerbach Playhouse. Two concerts spotlight the music of composer Frederick Shevsky, who makes a rare U.S. appearance along with longtime collaborator, pianist Ursula Oppens, June 8th and 10th in Hertz Hall. Don't miss the Berkeley Edge Fest, June 7th through 10th on the UC Berkeley campus. Call Cal Performances at 510-642-9988 or order online at calperformances.net. Co-sponsored by KPFA. program reminder from KPFA in Berkeley. On Africa Today, Monday, June 4th, an interview with Chimamanda Adichie, author of award-winning book Half a Yellow Sun, Half a Yellow Sun, is the story of the Nigerian Biafran War in 1966, told through the eyes of a Nigerian writer, Chimamanda Adichie. That's on Africa Today, Mondays at 7 p.m. And it is now 329 on KPFA in Berkeley or KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, the KFCF.